Hello, and welcome to another IBMS pod. This month, we're joined by consultant histopathologist Darren Trainer for a discussion about digital pathology, after which we catch up with intrepid traveler and pathology services manager, Sue Alexander. But first up, as always, the news. We're delighted to announce Deborah Padgett's IBMS presidency commence on the 1st of January 2022. Deborah is passionate about promoting and recognising excellence in all of our members. In her eight years as an IBMS council member, she has represented the membership at national, regional and local levels. We look forward to Deborah's leadership over the next two years. On the 4th of February 1922, women were first formally granted membership to the IBMS. This year then marks the 100-year anniversary of women in membership. Keep an eye out for our campaign celebrating this milestone and the incredible women of the profession over the years. It's time to renew your membership. IBMS membership offers a range of tailored benefits to help advance your career and demonstrate your expertise through knowledge and development, support, recognition and networks. Visit our website to find out more about all of our stories. Welcome to Darren Trainer, who is joining us this month on the IBMS pod. Darren is a consultant histopathologist in Leeds and the Royal College of Pathologists lead on digital pathology. So welcome to the podcast, Darren. Thank you very much for having me. Hello. Ah, pleasure. Now, Darren, can you tell us a bit about your background and how you became involved in digital pathology? Yes, I'm a pathologist. So I work for the NHS as a liver pathologist diagnosing liver disease. Um, but I've always had an interest in computing. So at the early stages of my career as a trainee pathology, uh, I got more involved in the medical side of computing. Um, I was fortunate enough to be working at Leeds when we got some of the first digital pathology scanners in Europe. And since then, I've developed my interest in them uh, more and more, doing some research and development work with scanners. And now I'm uh, helping to run a national program for digital pathology deployment called NPIC, National Pathology Imaging Cooperative. Brilliant. And I'm sure the majority of people listening know all about digital pathology, but for those who don't, can you give us the kind of the, the idiot's guide to digital pathology, what it is and how it functions? Yes, absolutely. Although it's been uh, around for about 20 years, the idea of digital pathology, it's actually not really that uh, common in the NHS, but it's undergoing a huge explosion at the moment in adoption. And it's a really very simple idea. In digital pathology, we take the histopathology slides that are produced in our lab and we put them into a scanner. And the scanner itself is really just a, a motorized uh, robotic microscope that captures an image of the whole slide. And that's called a whole slide image, image which is why we sometimes refer to digital pathology as whole slide imaging. And what that means is instead of having to handle a glass slide, sit in a microscope and look down the eyepiece to look at the pathology sample, we can now sit at a workstation, either in our department or somewhere remote, to pan and zoom in and out of the image to make diagnoses digitally. And of course, having the digital image capture like that also means that you can do other things. So you can potentially share the image with multiple people at once, or you can use computers to help you analyze the image as well. So what's the driver behind digital pathology, Darren? Is it to save money? Is it to improve diagnosis? What, what's the ultimate aim, if you are to encapsulate it? Yes, I suppose our laboratories uh, have worked very well in diagnosing cancer for, for years using glass slides and manual examination of slides with a microscope. Um, but if you look to other areas of medicine, they've all undergone a 
significant digital transformation as information technology has, has come along and helped them. And so when I was a junior doctor in Ireland in the 1990s, a lot of my job consisted of walking around the hospital looking for x-ray films, finding them and then carrying these big envelopes of x-ray films up to the operating theatre or the wards so they can be examined. And that digital transformation that's happened in radiology has enabled completely different ways of operating clinical services, increased flexibility uh, in many ways that have been hugely beneficial in radiology. And we hope that many of the same benefits will come to pathology. Um, some of the work that we've done at Leeds has attempted to systematically look at the reasons why you'd want to go digital. And um, one of my colleagues, Bethany Williams, is a digital pathology fellow at Leeds, and she's written several uh, summaries of why you'd want to go digital and how you'd make a business case for it. But the sort of things that hospitals find useful with digital pathology are uh, the ability to get second opinions from colleagues without having to post them a glass slide. So you can just ask them to look at the digital image. And the ability to run MDT meetings where we have to, sorry, these are multidisciplinary team meetings where we discuss patients' cancer diagnoses. And at the moment, hospitals spend a lot of time and effort gathering glass slides together to review them and then to show them at these meetings. And in fact, we have got almost four full-time staff in our hospital whose job it is to move those glass slides around. And digital technology takes away the need for that. Um, but then looking towards the future, we're hoping that we'll be able to use digital images to maybe work more efficiently, manage work by sharing it between colleagues or between laboratories more effectively, um, and maybe increase our speed or accuracy using image analysis in the future. So it's a very complicated answer because generally digital technology in healthcare isn't just about one thing, about saving yeah. costs or making things better, but everything. I suppose as a doctor, a really important message is though that we want it to be better than before. So it has to be as good in terms of speed, as good in terms of accuracy. And that's why we're very careful about how we adopt digital technology and artificial intelligence, because we want to make sure that we're not doing anything that's regressive in that. Brilliant. And um, Leeds, where you were based, was um, quite a pioneer in digital pathology. Was it tough setting that up when, when there were no similar systems elsewhere in the UK for you to learn from? What was it, what was it like being a bit of a trailblazer in that area? an interesting way to ask it. I would say that we were very uh, excited by this technology. So we started with our first scanner in 2003 and we saw the potential then, but there were an awful lot of barriers uh, and technological things to address before it was ready for a prime time clinical use. So I suppose we were um, pleased to be in that role of starting the um, or being one of the first adopters addressing some of the issues so that others could, could follow. Um, when I was a, uh, a, a researcher in the early days in digital pathology, there was a, um, a cliche within our, our, our community that digital pathology is the future and it always will be because the actual technology has been around and viable since the 1990s, but it was always not clear when it would reach mainstream. And uh, from a Leeds point of view, we weren't really surprised by the length of time it took for it to be adopted because we saw there were questions about had we yet established clinical safety, were the scanners yet fast enough, were the viewing um, systems accurate enough and usable enough. So it has taken a good 10, 15 years of research and development to get to the point where we are today, where digital pathology is getting to the point of mainstream adoption. And yes, there are several questions still to answer and things still to overcome, um, but it's certainly 
has come a long way. Um, from my own perspective, it's kind of been fun because I quite like the um, when, when a technology is new, it's possible to develop new things and make great strides in it. Um, so we've enjoyed it, but we have taken a very long-term view since the beginning. What is it going to take to make this work for patients in clinical practice? And uh, that has taken a couple of decades, I would say, of, of uh, careful and stepwise work. And is it being expanded out into any other areas of biomedical science? Because when you talk through it, the, the benefits for histopathology are, you know, quite quite obvious. Are there other areas that, it, that can can adapt it, or or not so much? I would say that generally in biomedical scientists, where di- digital has been adopted already, ahead of histopathology in many areas. So, for example, in biochemistry and hematology, digital technologies have been adopted very successfully several decades ago. Um, our own specific technology of scanning images of entire slides is very specifically tailored to histopathology. So it doesn't translate directly across into other areas of biomedical science um, as of yet. But perhaps the learnings about how to digitize a process in a lab and potentially in future how to link artificial intelligence to that might be useful in other parts of laboratory practice once we've gone through it in histopath. And what's it been like during the pandemic? Has it been a useful tool to have in the pandemic with people working remotely? Yes, absolutely. And uh, I work uh, part-time as a professor in Sweden where every laboratory has has had scanners for at least a decade. Um, and for them, the pandemic meant that they could just keep working as normal. In the UK, far fewer places have access to digital scanners. So when the pandemic struck, it meant that pathologists could no longer sit side by side with trainees to teach them. We could no longer go into meeting rooms together with glass slides and talk at multidisciplinary team meetings about patients. So as a hospital, one of the first to have access to the technology, it allowed us to continue working, To our trainees could continue to look at cases digitally, and we were able to literally overnight start doing our MDT meetings digitally. Um, it's also allowed our colleagues to work uh, remotely. So several of my colleagues now rely on the ability to look at the images from home uh, in order to continue providing a service. And of course, there are many terrible things about this pandemic um, uh, and the impact it's had on our world. It has, I think, highlighted that digital transformation, digital technologies are hugely enabling and beneficial and probably, I think, made the case for digital technology much stronger, probably accelerated the adoption significantly, certainly in the NHS, I would say. Brilliant. And just before I hand you over to Jordan, you, you mentioned uh, the role that AI is starting to play. Can you, can you just touch on that briefly, please? Yes. So because we've now got lots of digital images in our laboratories uh, stored on computer systems, it means that we can attempt to analyze them with the computer's assistance. And artificial intelligence, despite the, the, the fancy title, is, is really just a computer technology that allows us to train a computer to recognize patterns. And there's a lot of excitement at the moment because artificial intelligence in the last five years has undergone an explosion of its capacity to analyze particularly images and text. And that's coincided with the, the rise of digital technology in laboratories. As a result, there's a lot of preliminary work at the moment and some exciting work showing that computers could potentially do tasks for us in the laboratory that would help us in terms of accuracy or speed going forward. Brilliant. As a, a nice note for me to pass you over to Jordan. Yeah, um, Darren. So I was going to ask you to explain the technique of virtual microscopy in a bit more detail if possible. I know you've kind of touched upon yes. it, 
and, and how the procedure procedure works. Yes, absolutely. So um, we have actually got quite a nice sort of basic guide to digital pathology that we can send a link to if it's helpful called Rosetta yeah. Scott and it covers some of the basics. Um, so it is really a very simple technology in that it is a robotic microscope. Samples are placed inside the scanners and the microscope moves over the entire image and captures a microscopic image at about 20 or 40 times magnification. Um, that all sounds very simple until you consider the size of the image. When you take a single glass slide with a piece of tissue about a centimetre in size on it, we image those slides at about 100,000 dots per inch. And it generates about five gigabytes of data per slide before we compress it down to one gigabyte. So as a result, our laboratory down the corridor from me in Leeds, we scan about 1,000 to 1,200 slides a day. We're generating about one terabyte or 1,000 gigabytes of image data every day in our lab. And we calculate that if you take one of our glass slides and just print it, it would be the size of a squash court or a tennis court. So although it's a simple idea, it's actually quite a big computing challenge. And the reason that scanners have taken so long to come along in our area is precisely that challenge. If you're generating gigabytes of data per second, then you need to have very high capacity computers, storage and powerful computers to move the data around. Are there any solutions to this to manage all that data as you say we're moving towards the future of digital pathology and computer-based ai diagnoses uh, so how are we going to mitigate against the, these issues yes i can remember um, when i first heard about digital pathology in, in the late 90s I remember thinking what a preposterous idea it would be to try and scan an entire glass slide and capture a digital image of it and now our scanners are doing thousands every week um, so at the scanner side, the instruments have now become very user-friendly. They usually look like a, a printer or a microwave type device sitting on a desk. Um, you load slides in in batches of 20 or 30. So the ones that we use can take up to 400 slides at a time. You literally press a button and walk away from it and they start buzzing away. Um, the scanners can now scan a slide in less than a minute. So it shouldn't uh, be a barrier to the operation of a laboratory to feed the slides in as you're creating them, staining them in the laboratory. On the other side, yes, um, when it's not just a matter of putting a scanner in a lab and off you go, there's an enormous amount of information technology work to be done behind the scenes. You need to have very fast network connections and very large amounts of storage. These are things that, although they are technical challenges, they actually are very solvable. And that was the reason why at Leeds we moved from a purely research environment in the early 2010s to small adoption in our hospital in 2015 and then full digitalization a few years ago. So I wouldn't underplay the IT side of this, but it's certainly very doable nowadays. I remember when I started, I'd never heard the word terabyte before. So a terabyte is uh, a thousand uh, gigabytes of, of information. And nowadays you can buy a laptop with a terabyte or two of storage on its disk. Uh, however, on our NPIC program, which is digitizing up to 40 hospitals in the NHS, we'll be generating four petabytes of image data per year. So a petabyte is a, a thousand terabytes, which is a very, very large amount of data. But there are modern storage techniques that allow you to keep on uh, far less expensive um, types of computers than you would have had to have done 20 years ago. Are there any other barriers to entry that are not based on the technology or on the data? Do scientists themselves or do people have any kind of moral or ethical considerations when it comes to implementing this technology? Yeah, it's a good point. So I think you've highlighted an important point, which is although we're describing it in terms of a technology and an IT deployment, um, these are very much transformations of laboratories involving people. 
And yeah. that's a very significant part of a digital quality deployment. And uh, yes, we've obviously considered and heard views from um, actually hundreds of people across our NPIC program about where they see the technology going and the strengths and weaknesses of potential threats. And what you've articulated in particular, um, sometimes people uh, are concerned on the laboratory side about whether a digital technology might make the laboratory operation more difficult, whether it makes the job of the biomedical scientist a bit more complex. Uh, some people have talked about whether the people who do the slide filing, moving the glass around the laboratory might be made redundant due to the presence of scanners in the lab. Now, at the other end, from a pathology point of view, um, not all pathologists are particularly happy to use digital images. A lot of them really like sitting in a microscope and working in that way. And there are some who are concerned about artificial intelligence doing tasks or replacing um, jobs. I think we would never, we always take these concerns very seriously and they have to be addressed and worked through. Um, I would argue that we're still at the very early stages, but I always reassure my pathology colleagues that artificial intelligence is never going to be able to do the, well, at least not in, our, in my lifetime, the complex range of tasks that we do as pathologists. Artificial intelligence is a way of doing mechanizing individual simple repetitive tasks that a machine can help you with. It's not going to replace all the complex judgment that a human pathologist brings to a diagnosis. Um, I would say in our own laboratory, we've had a very positive reception from the biomedical scientists, particularly when we move to the most up-to-date scanners. They're easier to use, they were quite pleasurable to operate, and they cause very few problems in terms of operations. And the people who um, slide who file our slides for us are potentially interested in operating the scanners as well. So I personally would never see digital pathology as something that um, brings negatives to staff in the lab. I think I would always try and um, adopt it in a way that is beneficial for people, makes their job easier, makes the job more interesting as well. Machine that's going to diagnose everything is going to come along anytime soon. <laughs> I often get asked to make predictions about the future and they're always wrong. So I, I think um, what I would reassure pathologists in particular is that AI will be a task. So AI does not replace entire roles, much as there has been a lot of hype about those sort of things. AI can, can replace individual tasks. So repetitive tasks like looking through hundreds of slides for small foci of cancer or small bacteria, AI would be very good at. The sort of really complex decisions that we as pathologists are, are, are employed to make. AI, general purpose AI that does all these things is some time away. So our jobs are safe. But that, I suppose, isn't the most important consideration because the most important thing is, do we make a good, accurate diagnosis quickly for our patients? And I think as a profession, uh, we should be using the tools that, that do that best. And it's not necessarily about making sure that people have a, a job, but making sure that laboratories give the best diagnosis for their patients. Yeah. And you mentioned the MPIC project that you've been involved in recently, looking at AI development within the NHS. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about that project and what it entails? Yes, NPIC is a programme that we uh, run from Leeds called the National Pathology Imaging Cooperative. And it's a very large programme that's been funded by the UK government and the NHS to deploy digital pathology in the NHS for all the benefits that we've talked about and also to uh, start the work on developing artificial intelligence and evaluating that it's safe in the NHS. So it's a very large and ambitious programme. Um, there are 29 partners in it, um, and it has a large amount of public funding to uh, meet its goals. The plan will be in NPIC to uh, put scanners into nearly 40 hospitals in the NHS, including full 100% digitisation of all the hospitals in the north of England, uh, from the Scottish border down to the, the south of, uh, of the West Yorkshire region. 
and um, but we'll also be putting two national networks in so that patients with uh, soft tissue and bone cancers and children's tumors can be diagnosed across two national networks uh, by specialists in those areas. Uh, we're about halfway through the program right now, and we're in the midst of a very intense period of uh, in, in installing scanners and large amounts of storage. We're hoping that the program will be um, will show great benefits for the, those laboratories that are using the scanners and for the patients who benefit from having access to, say, second opinions more, more quickly than you would before. Mm. Your role is kind of split between different areas. So you work in the NHS, in diagnostic laboratories, you work in research, you work in, a, in Sweden in a lab, and also your RCPATH lead for digital pathology. So, I mean, could you tell us a little bit more about the different roles that you undertake? Sure, yeah. Um, so for the Royal College of Pathologists, um, we recognised as a, as a professional body a number of years ago that this technology was coming, although it wasn't clear how quickly it would have an impact on patient care. And um, our president and the college decided that they should make a, a role, a lead uh, for that on behalf of our profession, and I applied when I was appointed. And we've now got a whole committee, a digital pathology committee in the college with uh, lots of very knowledgeable pathologists who've all gone through a digital pathology deployment. And we consider our role is to help um, our profession and the NHS to understand the technology um, assist people with um, deploying digital pathology safely and where necessary setting uh, standards or guidelines for people to work against. And I think the timing was pretty good because just after we came up with our first set of guidelines about how to go digital, suddenly lots of laboratories started um, buying scanners, so they found that very useful. We meet three times a year and we come up with additional guidance to support, uh, say, trainees uh, in using digital pathology. Uh, and also the college and some of its efforts using digital pathology for teaching and examinations as well. Okay. Uh, sorry, I've interrupted you. No problem. And in terms of the universities, I suppose it's probably worth saying, um, because it's such a new technology, the, the, that's why I have a research role. Um, it's not just off the shelf. So before we could put scanners into the hospital, we had to evaluate the clinical safety of them with the so-called systematic evaluation of the safety. And um, my own PhD was actually in the area of human-computer interaction. So working out how best to navigate these big images really quickly using large displays and, and special hardware. And um, so that research was kind of important to underpinning how we go digital clinically. And yeah, there is, I do work part-time in Sweden. It's a very special place for me uh, called Linköping in the center of Sweden. And uh, the reason I worked there is because I visited uh, nearly a decade ago and saw how far ahead they were of the rest of the world in terms of digital quality adoption. And I realized that it was a great opportunity to work with them, uh, to learn from them. And a lot of the lessons I learned in Sweden are now being employed across the NHS um, as we catch up with, with the activity that they did some time ago. Okay. Well, on that note, then, I'm going to hand you over to Rob for the quick fire round. Okay, thank you very much. So, first off, and I think I know the answer to this, but algorithms or scientists? Hmm. I wasn't expecting that. Um, I don't think it's either or in that case. Um, I'll, oh, you want a one-line answer, don't you? I'll stop talking. Are you, no, you, you can do a sentence. You can do a sentence, that's all right. I just, people have started talking about algorithms as if they're a bad thing. Uh, an algorithm is just a rule that we've developed based on knowledge, and that would have been generated by a scientist. So I would say yes, both to those, please. Perfect. And working in the lab or working remotely, which do you prefer? 
Oh. Torn. It's very convenient to work remotely at the weekend, so remotely. Public speaking, which now you've got a fair bit of experience in, is it fun or a necessary evil? Uh, it's mostly fun. Finally, we're getting on to 5pm now, Darren. What's the first thing you're going to do once we finish this recording? I'm going to pop down to the lab and uh, chase some stains that I'm waiting for on a case uh, before I finish it off uh, for tomorrow. Brilliant. On that note, Darren, thank you so much for your time. Hi, Sue. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, hello. Thank you for inviting me along. So we have Sue Alexander here, who's the Principal Biomedical Scientist and Pathology Services Manager at Royal Marsden NHS Foundation Trust. Um, among lots of accolades in her career, Sue has been an intrepid traveler. Um, she has traveled to places around the globe, from the Galapagos Islands to Easter Island, Madagascar, Antarctica. So we've got a lot of questions about that. <laughs> so, Sue, I guess to start, you know, of all these places that you've been, you know, do you have a favorite um, to share with us? And yeah, why? That's a really difficult question to answer um, because all the places are so different. I have to say in terms of having one place that is a kind of go back to, it's always Italy. Um, there has to be a trip to Italy every year. Um, but other than that, I have to say that going to Madagascar is like going to the lost continent. It's absolutely incredible in terms of the wildlife. Um, so that that is kind of a definitely a high point. And I've been there three times to different areas. Um, over 20 years ago, I managed to get a visa uh, entry permit to go into Tibet and did a, a cross-country trip from Kathmandu to Lhasa, uh, which was more exciting than it should have been because of all the landslides on the road, uh, and the road wasn't made up, and one of our Land Rovers turned over in the river, not the one I was in. So that was quite an epic trip, very spiritual. And then Antarctica is probably one of the most mind-shattering places on Earth in terms of the majesty of, of the landscapes um, and the fun of the penguins and an encounter we had with a pod of killer whales. So it, it was the closest probably to going to another planet, I think, and did it very authentically by actually uh, travelling by ship across the Drake Passage um, to experience the full feeling of six-metre waves and that sort of thing um, and for two days. And rather than flying across, which you can do, so I feel I've done something very authentic and had an incredible experience there. That sounds amazing. So a lot of these places sound like um, one of the reasons you, you know, are interested in going to them is the wildlife. Is that something that you know you'd say is a factor for you in picking a place to go? Yes, definitely. It, it is a factor in places to go because Madagascar was, you know, it's all about the lemurs sort of thing, which are absolutely lovely. Um, and the sort of, we were, and the Galapagos, we were swimming with the little seals, which is tremendous fun. And I've probably spent an awful lot of um, carbon miles traveling to see creatures that are going to become extinct or are risking extinction. So probably I shouldn't be doing it. 
Um, but, you know, to see like a wild polar bear in Greenland just walking down the mountainside and then getting into the sea and, and a, another day a mother bear, another time another a mother bear with two cubs, you know, it's tremendously exciting to see these iconic life forms um, and to really have a connection with them to understand why we should preserve them for the future. Yeah, so I think that's really interesting um, and something you know I think about when I'm traveling um, in terms of, you know, the carbon footprint and, you know, but wanting to go and experience a place. In, in all of you, these travels, do you have any, like, particular stories that stand out that would be fun to share with us? They're, they're all incredible. I suppose I've mentioned the polar bears. We saw five polar bears in one afternoon. Uh, there's only 20,000 in the world, so you could actually work wow. out the proportion that we've seen. And again, I referred to the, the killer whales. We were on the ship one afternoon and we had some sort of activity planned, but they just announced over the tunnel, oh, there's a pod of killer whales over the side if you want to go and look. And then they said, oh, and they're not going anywhere, so we're just going to launch all the Zodiacs and go out and be with them. I suppose another really magical uh, sort of encounter I had was um, – and I shouldn't have done it really, but we were we were swimming off the coast of Madagascar, and and there were turtles. I mean, they you know, if you go out there, you'll see the turtles. And I thought, oh rubbish, you know, we're never going to see the turtles. And then there were the turtles, and I did actually touch one's flipper, which was absolutely incredible. Um, I was supposed to interact with the wildlife. And um, another time, I was somewhere, I just looked. Oh, it was in in um, the Okavango Delta was walking across the centre of the camp and just looked up and there was this huge, it's called Pearl's Fishing Owl, enormous grey owl, and it dropped a feather on the floor. So I picked the feather up and I've, I've still got the, the owl feather and I've got bits of sand from all around the world and shells and strange things that I've picked up, but kind of like odd little souvenirs um, to remind you of places. That's lovely. Where do you get ideas from? Um, for your travels? So the reason I first went to Madagascar was when I saw David Attenborough's um, programme, uh, I can't remember which it was, Life on Earth possibly, uh, and he went to Madagascar uh, and he was showing the world's tiniest chameleon, which is only like about that big, and I just thought I want to see that, you know, and I wanted to see the lemurs. And then I'd watched... I'd watched programs about again about Antarctica, and that had always been a distant dream. Um, and and it's I saw the one about Norway. I saw one of these great railway journeys on this particular railway there, and I thought I want to go on that. So I tend to see these things and just get mad ideas. Other other things have been with me since I was a child. I'd wanted to go to um, Lhasa to see the Patala Palace there since I saw a picture of it in a child's encyclopedia. And, and I, again, I saw um, years ago as a child, I saw a picture of these sort of giant heads on, on, on Easter Island, and I, I was so fascinated, um, and I just wanted to see them. And I, and I was really thrilled because I combined this mad trip going down to um, Lima and Cusco and Machu Picchu, then flying to... Santiago in Chile, then going over to Easter Island. And I was amazed when we got on Easter Island, we saw the, the quarry where they start building the, 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 the statues. 
out of stone. And the picture I'd seen, it was exactly what we saw when we walked up to it. So I was, I was absolutely freaking out about how amazing it was. That sounds incredible. Have you traveled at all since COVID happened? Absolutely. I was deprived of my two ski trips last year as I simply watched my EasyJet flights being cancelled before my eyes. Um, and I'd never before considered what a privilege it is actually to travel because previously it's just been a matter of booking the flights or speaking to your travel consultant saying, I want to go there and do this and see that, stay in this sort of hotel. But suddenly you couldn't do it at all for a time. Um, and then they put all sorts of barriers up in the way to travel and hurdles to jump over. But I was just so determined that I would continue to travel and see the world. And no matter what barriers were put in place, I would overcome them. So um, last year, managed to do a couple of trips to Italy, including going to Venice in September without cruise ships. So you could actually see Venice, which was really nice and also a trip to Sweden. And then this year, um, gone further afield. So we went to Madeira because it was on the green list, um, which was quite fun for a few days. Uh, and then we went back to Iceland uh, early September and did a 1,000-mile round trip of the southeastern part of the north of Iceland, uh, which was terribly exciting and incredibly spectacular. And then we've only recently just come back from Oman. Uh, so a diversity of countries, all with all sorts of different things to offer, all with, you know, your pre-PCR test, your registering on the country's website, your, in one case, getting a visa at the last moment because I hadn't realised we needed one, um, your booking a PCR test when you're out there, uh, there's... A passenger locator form for the UK, which is one of the most hideous forms in the world. Uh, and then you get in, making sure you get your return PCR or other test done as well. Yeah. So, all that made, made it away, made it back. Do you have any advice for, you know, people who might be, you know, I know, for instance, this summer, um, I found a lot of the guidance very confusing. I know a lot of people did as well. And, and that, you know, was definitely a barrier to me even wanting to get away. Um, do you have any advice for people to, you know, kind of take that on um, or, you know, how, how they should be looking into it before they plan any travels? Like anything about any country you, you're going to go to, especially if you've not been there before, find out all the sort of general information you need, check if you need a visa to save yourself 48 hours of serious stress, um, and then do check very carefully the uh, foreign office information on that country and getting back into here and be aware that can change uh, at relatively short notice and also go on the country's own uh, websites where they have information about people going in to make sure you register with, with the right sort of thing you've got to register with and print off the right sort of forms and check that up almost until the point you're leaving. Um, and if you need a test on when you get back, book that before you go so it'll be waiting for you when you get back. Yeah. What are you thinking in terms of options for travel, what they might be in the new year? 
I think, I mean, Omicron's taking over in the same way as we saw Delta, now Omicron's taking over. I personally am not put off travel. I am double vaccinated, boosted, flu jabbed, have an armful of everything for anywhere I go. Um, so that doesn't bother me at all. You know, places want you to go to them. You know, the world is still there. Um, and I've certainly got a plan for a range of countries I'm hoping to visit next year. And I would say to people, yes, it's a hell of a fact to get in and out sometime. But if you really want to go, you know, life is short. Um, you know, we've had sort of quite 18 months disruption in our lives so far. Um, you know, I'm really sorry to hear about things like poaching in Africa, for example, has gone up a lot when the tourists stopped going, that sort of thing. So actually traveling can have some benefits for the world. Um, and, and it's really good for your your own sort of like well-being and health to have a proper break. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have anywhere that you're thinking of in the new year? Kind of getting into Scandinavia quite a lot at the moment. So looking at touring Norway, um, maybe our rolled over trip to Tanzania and all the highlights of Tanzania and Zanzibar will go ahead this year. And also now that South America is back opened up, we had been planning to go to Chile, to go to things like the Atacama Desert and Lake Titicaca and salt flats and all that sort of thing. So that's on my sort of wish list for this coming year. Bringing it back to the lab, um, what do you think there's anything, you know, from your extensive travels that you've brought back to your workplace um, and kind of your your mindset as a as a scientist? Um, I suppose it's the answer is that the microorganisms don't read the books and they're out there and it doesn't take, you know, it doesn't take along when you get people and animals that shouldn't be together um, to start spreading diseases and creating the possibility. I've read a lot about potential new infections that could jump uh, life forms to end up in people and kind of, I suppose, not necessarily lab-based science, but more ecologically with deforestation and people moving into forest areas, they're exposed to insects and animals with all these um, live animal food type markets. Again, you're bringing people and animals into close contact. So I guess the answer is be vigilant. Read, especially if you're a microbiologist, read request forms carefully in case they, they have something on them that might hint at something you don't want to be handling uh, unless you're in containment level four. Um, Ebola's still around. It just doesn't get as much press as coronavirus. Um, and there are other things going on as well in terms of animal and avian flu viruses. So the answer is don't be complacent. Always have a weather eye open. Cool. Well, thank you, Sue, um, for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me along. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. These podcasts are released monthly at the same time the magazine comes out. So whenever a new issue lands on your doormat, head back online to listen to a new episode. And don't forget that these podcasts can be used for your CPD. Take care and bye.